welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston. And I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. Today we have the second part of the Station Nightclub Fire. And I didn't mention it during part one because I didn't know if this would come to fruition. But I scored a hell of an interview with Scott James. Feel free to thank me later, guys. Scott has written the definitive book about the Station Nightclub Fire, and the book is called Trial by Fire, A Devastating Tragedy, 100 Lives Lost in a 15-Year Search for the Truth. And let me tell you something about this book, guys. It grabs you by the lapels and brings you into the fire while it's still going on, okay? He also grabs you by the lapels and forces you to sit at the dinner table with the victims of this tragedy. Don't miss it. This book is a ride through this fire and the timeline, and it gives you a sense of Rhode Island politics. And I think people outside the New England area really have to feel that a little bit. Okay, it's pretty unique. Check this book out. Put it on the list. Go to scottjameswriter.com and all the information's there. The book's available anywhere you get fine books, but check out the website. Go from there. Scott had mentioned he'd like to give some juice to these smaller booksellers. If you can do that, please go right ahead and do so. But for right now, this is Scott James. Scott, welcome to Boston Confidential. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Scott, I've just given your bio and everybody, but please introduce your new book about the fire at the Station Nightclub in 2003. Well, the book is called Trial by Fire, and it's about the Great White Concert in February 20th, 2003, uh, where the band set off fireworks as part of its show. And the fireworks uh, in this small roadside club ignited some foam that was on the wall, some soundproofing foam, which heated into an inferno and literally in a matter of seconds the place went up in flames uh if a person was in there uh, 90 seconds after those fireworks were set off they were likely dead or left dying uh, in the end a hundred people were killed hundreds of others were injured it's really one of the deadliest criminal cases in the united states of america's history when you think about it you'd have to go to like a terrorism case like 9-11 to find a, a criminal case where it involved more fatalities one of the things I wanted to touch base with you, do you ever notice when people speak of the station fire, they avert their eyes, they look off into the distance and it's one of those things, people get very hushed over it, like 9-11. And it's just almost something spiritual with this because we basically watch those people die through is his name Brian Butler, the photographer? Yeah. So, you know, there are many terrible, awful twists to this story. But one of the ones that really gets you is the fact that it was all captured on videotape. Right. So it just happened to me that a local TV news crew was inside the building. 
filming for another story, unrelated story, ironically enough, about public venue safety. And the Brian Butler was a TV news photographer for a local station, and he was assigned to get what's called B-roll. B-roll was kind of generic pictures to go with the upcoming story. So he had actually finished getting all the shots he needed of people hanging out inside this club, waiting for the show to start. But what happened was he thought, you know what, I've got to enough, but I'm going to stick around and just shoot the first couple of minutes of the band coming on stage because the guys back at the station, they're probably going to get a kick out of this, even though it's probably never going to make it into the piece. So he was rolling as the band hits the stage, lights off the pyrotechnics that starts the inferno. So all of it is captured. In 2021, we are so used to the idea of everything being caught on video. In 2003, the iPhone had yet been invented. And so it was extremely rare to catch actual tragedies of this magnitude on video. And the fact that he was a professional news photographer, you really have to go to like 9-11 or the Hindenburg disaster to find something like that. So one of the awful twists of the story is that this tragedy happens and it's, it's enormous in its reality. But then it becomes a giant media feeding frenzy because this video is so rare. It is seen all over the world. You know, I talked to people who heard about the fire on a remote Greek island. This is how worldwide this catastrophe was perceived because of that video. Right. Now, Brian Butler, I think he said it took him 72 seconds to exit. He gets out at 80 seconds, not so much. At over 90 seconds, that's about the line, isn't it? It is. And, you know, we see part of this in Brian's video. He's literally pushed out with the crowd. And you practically feel it when you watch the video of him being shoved by this stampede of people trying to get out. You know, this is one of the most, because of that video, this is one of the most well-documented fires in the history of this nation. In fact, it's studied by firefighters all over the country as part of their training to look at this. Because second by second, you know what happened. So later, the feds decide to recreate the conditions of the fire to study it, to figure out what went wrong and why things happened so quickly and why so many people died. And they recreate the fire in a laboratory down in the Washington, D.C. area. And it shows that this black smoke that happens is about the 90-second mark. The entire place from ceiling to floor is engulfed in this black smoke. Now, we call it black smoke, but in fact, it's superheated particles. And in some parts of the building, the fire was set. 1400 degrees, which of course is not survivable for human beings. And so 90 seconds was a mark. If you were still in there, you likely were dead. But as you'll see in the book, there are some people who did make it past that mark. One of the main subjects of the book is one of those people. And their stories are just incredible. Yeah, they're harrowing. Just from the beginning, though, Great White comes on after a break from one of the lead in bands. And at this point, the occupancy rate of the station is in question because some were saying that a lot of Rhode Islanders were there to see one of the two opening acts and Great White was the main draw, but it was kind of divided between the bands. But when I think the height of the night was the Great White, they come out, lights go down, and that's when they light these I called them fireworks. That's kind of underestimate. Pyrotechnics is the right word, right? Yeah, well, these are basically, they're called gerbs or gerbs, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And they're like those 4th of July sparklers you have, except they're supersized. And so these come out like a big giant sparkler and they create this plume of 
flame and sparks. Right. But, you know, it kind of goes behind the band. It kind of lights them up very, almost like ethereal the way they come on the stage, like they're emerging from heaven or something like that. Right. And, you know, generally speaking, these would probably be considered fairly benign as far as pyrotechnics are concerned, except for the fact that the club's walls were lined with this foam. This was supposed to be soundproofing foam. Sound foam, by law, is supposed to be flame retardant. But instead, what was put on the walls of the club was packing foam. And packing right. foam is like solid gasoline. It's an, an accelerant. Right. And so the feds later through their testing basically determined that there was the equivalent of 13 gallons of gasoline on the walls of this club. And that is why it became an inferno so fast and why people had no chance to get out. The capacity of the club, it's really an interesting story. I looked at it in a bunch of different ways from a bunch of different sources. And I could say that it certainly was more complicated than what the public was told originally was right. the situation. So or the original reporting that was done by the news media said that the capacity of the club was 300. And so there were clearly, because you have 100 dead, you have hundreds hurt, there was more than 300 people in the club. So immediately they pronounced to the public that the club was illegally over capacity. But it turned out the capacity of the club was 404, not 300. It had been grandfathered in at some point. Is that? Well, I think that basically the way the codes were set up in Rhode Island was very hanky to say the least. They hadn't been updated in a long time. Right. But basically the way the code was and the fire inspector followed the law. And in fact, you, I'd look at his notes, his handwritten notes, how he did the math. Basically, when you have a standing room only crowd, each person is allotted something like seven square feet or something like that as their personal space in a standing room only situation. By the way, the same rules apply to like, you know, Foxborough Stadium. Right. And so when the French was so that's what he came up with. That was his math. In fact, it's 404.6 or something like that exactly when he did the math as to how many people would be allowed in. So did the operators of the nightclub exceed that amount? Well, we don't know because of the fluid situation. You talked about the other people and the other bands. See, what people don't remember about the station, because now, of course, it's so infamous as a site of tragedy, but before the tragedy, it was a site of fun. People went there to have a good time. People often played their first gigs as their local bands by going and either playing there or seeing their friends play there. So on a night like this, we had two local bands and then you had Great White. Incredible as this might sound to some people, some people were there to see the local bands and they're in and out. So the, the one way to solve this mystery about how many people were in the club, one of the clues would have been what's called the clicker. So there was a woman, Andrea Mancini, who was part of the club staff, and she had a clicker, and she was at the door keeping the head count. So witnesses who saw the clicker before the show started had it at about 3.50 or 3.25, depending on what time they saw it, the clicker. Now, the clicker was never reported found by the government by the, the, the state police or the local police or, or the arson investigators, nobody found the clicker. So the clicker would be a very important clue as to what was the headcount at that moment. So yeah, so it's weird. I and mean, the, the other part of the story is that people didn't really talk about this at the time, probably out of deference to the memory of the victims, but this was a kind of a really raucous place. Right. The parking lot had as much activity going on as inside the club. People went outside to smoke dope. Right. You could smoke cigarettes at that time. That was legal in 2002, but smoking dope was not. And so people were outside getting high and they were right. pre-gaming with alcohol in their cars and they were hooking up and all the things that you would do at a rock and roll club. It's really a roadhouse style. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. So people are in and out. I mean, there is even some question of whether or not some of the people who perished in the fire 
were inside when the fire started. They might have been outside and ran in to right. save people and perished as a result. So the question of how many people were inside the club when the fire started is unanswered. And I give you all of the different reports from the different angles. But what happened is there was a local newspaper, the Providence Journal. They decided that they alone would answer this question as to how many people were inside that club. And they did some reporting where they basically relied on a lot of different sources, many of it unconfirmed, and then published a number. And they published the number 412. First of all, they published that it was illegally over capacity because they reported that 300 was the capacity. And they kept with that story for months. And finally, when they were corrected that they had the wrong information, then they said, well, we're going to go and basically try to prove that it was over capacity even at 404. Right. So they do this investigation and they do it as a front page thing. And they say that they talked to a bunch of people. But if you look at their notes very carefully, you realize that, in fact, many of the people that they quote unquote, confirmed or in the club, they never actually spoke to. They never actually confirmed or in the club. Right. And people don't like to talk about this because they have a set in their mind feeling about what happened. But when you get people aside who really know this case and have lived with it for their lives, they will tell you, they look at the list of people in the province journal and say, that person's lying, that person's lying, that person wasn't there. I had a conversation with one guy. It was really interesting. He claimed to be there inside when the fire started. And honestly, nice guy. He's been, you know, dining out on this story as a survivor of the fire for years and years and years. And so when he talked me through it, he basically said, yeah, I was there and they let off the fireworks and I ordered my drink at the bar and I had my drink at the bar. And I was talking to the bartender and then I went outside and I went and got a cup of tea and then I turned around and I couldn't believe that the building was on fire. Now we know because of the Brian Butler video that all of this happened in seconds. Right. There's no way anyone hung out in there ordering drinks and had time to go get a hot cup of tea and then turn around and notice the book. So he is lying. He was not inside, but he has been telling people that he was inside the fire for years and years and years. And I don't embarrass him. I don't put him in the book and try to ruin the guy's life. But there were people like that. Right. There were people in the journal story who one guy, they said, they interviewed him and confirmed that he was inside the fire. We know he wasn't inside the fire because he went to cover the fire as a journalist. And this video of him on YouTube of him running towards the burning building with his camera to get the pictures. But he is listed in the journal's piece as someone that they interviewed and confirmed was actually in there when the fire started. So those numbers are in question. I think you said in the book that one of the ways to confirm who is inside or not at the club was when the civil suits came in, how many people legitimately claimed to be there. And that was still under capacity, correct? Yeah, that was in the low 300s. And what was interesting about that was that even the lawyers in that case told me that they know that some of the people that got settlement money, they had what they would call dubious claims. But the thing had gone on for so long to try to get money for these poor people who were really victimized and were really hurt and really needed it that at some point they kind of threw in the towel and yeah. said, okay, there are going to be some very questionable cases thrown into this pot, but we've got to get money to these people. So we're just going to go with it. Yeah. So shame on the lawyers who included people in the settlement who they knew had dubious claims, but it did happen. Yeah, that's crazy. Take us through the first minute from when those gerbs went on. And I know we see a lot of it in this Brian Butler video, but how quickly does the temperature rise to unsustainable levels? Well, what's really tragic and takes on a really terrible dimension to all of this is because this happens at the stage. So near the stage, which is near the stage door, one of the key ways that people could have gotten out to survive, that's where the fire starts. 
in that area, probably in a matter of 30, 40 seconds, you've got the heat gets to something like 1,000 degrees. So even though that emergency exit is wide open, and we see this in the Brian Butler video, we see that people could have, the band got out there and a few patrons got out there, that stage door. But after that point, it is impassable because you have a wall of heat and fire that makes it impossible to get to that door. So now you've got three exits remaining for people to get out. And most people go, as you and I would, the way we came in, because that's what we know. Our brain says you came in this way, that's the way you go out. So it becomes a bottleneck at the main entrance. And in fact, most of the people who died, died uh, being kind of crammed up in that, trying to get out that entrance. There's another entrance that some people get out. And then the fourth exit is through the kitchen. And one of the things I discovered by going through documents and secret grand jury testimony was that prior to the owners of the club buying that business, the fire inspector came in and made the previous operators of the club remove all the exit signs for the fourth exit through the kitchen because he said it was a violation of fire code to have an exit through the kitchen. So it was really interesting that people who worked at the club and survived knew there was this fourth exit and they used that exit to get out. The right. patrons did not. And there are probably close to a dozen people who died were kind of right near that exit, Man. but they would have never known it was there because there were no signs. They'd all been taken down. So just a perfect storm of errors. You know, the fireworks should never have been lit off. There were 15-foot sparks in a club with 12-foot ceilings. Right. They were illegal. They didn't have permits. Uh, there's a question about whether or not they have permission. The band members say they had permission, but there's no evidence in any documents anywhere that they had permission to do pyrotechnics. And in fact, other club owners were lined up to testify against Great White Right. Because they said that they didn't get permission and they fired fireworks in their clubs too. So you had that mistake. You have the foam is a terrible mistake. The building had been given an inspection just weeks before where it was all okay. So the, the fire inspector never noticed the foam, never tested the foam to make sure that it was the correct type of foam. That's fairly standard at that time that what they would do to make sure the building is safe. Yeah. And then before we even get to any of that night, people are doomed by the fact that the building did not have sprinklers. Right. Sprinklers are a technology that dates back to the 1800s, but in the way the codes were set up and what they call grandfathering and a lot of those type of deals, it was not required. The people who operated the club, who were the ones who were eventually criminally prosecuted, they didn't actually own the building. The building was owned by somebody else. Right. They had never had sprinklers installed. And there's you know a question about when you have a place that has is open to the public, should it have sprinklers like that? In the aftermath of the fire, uh, 60 Minutes, Scott Kelly did an excellent piece where he takes to account kind of the guidance in charge of the National Fire Codes. And he's like, okay, so why not? Why does this building not have sprinklers? And the guy just couldn't give him a good answer. And then they changed the fire codes after that. Right. So we're doomed before we get there because the fire codes are out of date and nobody's necessarily doing anything illegal with regard to the sprinklers, but they should have been there. And it would have saved every life. And it's not even a theory, because a few days before this fire, there was a very similar situation in Minneapolis where a rock band illegally set off fireworks inside a club that had foam on the walls that ignited. And that building had sprinklers. The sprinklers put out the fire. Every single person survived. Not a single person was even injured. Right. So we know that would have saved lives and that didn't happen. So the perfect storm of things went wrong in this fire. That's why so many people are dead. Right. Scott, the video, Brian Butler's video, you can see the door. Yes. And yet 
We now know what happened, but there was allegations that a bouncer turned people away from that door. And I believe the kitchen was back into the right. And like you say, there was 12 people there, but it was such a clusterfuck. Why didn't that bouncer start directing people out? He would have saved half of those people. Two things about that that make it more complicated, I think, than it was originally reported. There's a photograph taken by a guy named Dan Davidson. So this is an addition to the Brian Butler video. And it is a dead-on shot of that guy stationed at that door. He wasn't, by the way, technically a bouncer. He was another patron. Right. Who They gave him a T-shirt and asked him if he would watch that door for the night. So the door stayed closed next to the stage, not because... People have said because it was only for VIPs. Well, there were no <laughs> VIPs. So, but people say things like that. And it, that makes you really angry, right? Doesn't that make you angry? That, yeah. that people, only VIPs can use the emergency exit. No, the door was shut because neighbors complained about the sound when shows were going on. So when the show was on, you know, rock music was blaring, that guy's job as a fill-in, a patron who put on a t-shirt was to make sure that the door stayed shut. So he would have turned away anyone who just said, I want to go in and out that door during the show. So the photograph from Dan Davidson shows this guy and it shows his face and it shows the fire behind him. And I think it's fairly clear looking at the photograph that he has no idea right. the stage is on fire, the stage is to his back. So the idea that's been built up that this guy purposely condemned some people to death because they were not VIPs, I don't think that's true. But was there a delay by him like just doing his job like this door's going to stay shut? I think that's probably very likely. Now, he does testify to the grand jury, and that is included in the book. People have not heard from this person and heard his side of events. Right. Uh, but there are other people, too. He says, and other people say, what do you do in a panic situation when you finally figure out there is a fire? He goes and runs to the green room, which is near there, and grabs bottles of water to throw at the fire. Because at that point, people think, well, you know, we'll put it out. The people who were out of the building didn't know that it was serious. Right. Uh, one woman said she expected to go back. She left her coat. She was going to go back inside and get it. Jack Russell, who's the lead singer of Great White, calls his quote-unquote old lady on the cell phone and says to her, basically, honey, looks like the show is going to be delayed. Because there's a fire, they got to put out, and then we'll go back in and finish our gig. Right. Uh, I'm afraid we might, you know, we might lose some of our equipment in that right. fire. I mean, so this is how things in seconds go from being, oh, it's a little fire we're going to put out to now all the, it's a tremendous tragedy. So yeah, I think it's fair to say when I looked at every aspect of this tragedy, that things were more complicated than the public had been told they were. Right. And. You know, one of the things that got me onto this to decide that it was a book and not simply a, a large news article was the fact that early on, I discovered that there had been these mock trials. So for people that know, a mock trial is kind of like a practice trial before you go to the real trials. Now, in this case, we ended up having no trials at all because everything was settled, but they were preparing for trials and they do what's called mock trials. Now, the defense did some mock trials and the state of Rhode Island, I think possibly for the first time in history, paid the money to do a mock trial. So in the mock trial, when all of the evidence was presented to these people who were supposed to represent the jurors, they would not convict. So this is supposed to be an open and shut case, right? People did the wrong thing. They got to be punished. But I'm thinking that because I'm thinking that based on what I've been reading in the news media or what the attorney general has been saying to me. Right. But when people considered all the facts, they wouldn't convict. What are they hearing that the public didn't hear? And so that kind of sent me on this journey to do this book, to find out what that was. And like I said, 
almost every single thing, even that story about the bouncer, which is infamous, turns out to be, well, okay, it's a little bit more complicated, yeah. certainly. And there are other views of it. And I have to tell you, it upsets people when I talk about this. People who I really like and who I have come to admire who survived this fire, they would be very upset. The idea that what they have come to believe is maybe not 100% accurate. Right. Something less than that. Yeah. So in their mind, having this villainy villain, a guy who somehow, what in the world would be the motivation to condemn people to death because they're not VIPs? I don't believe that happened. And it's a very popular thing for people to believe there. And when I say to them, I'm not so sure about that, they don't like hearing it. No. Scott, let me tell you, that guy wouldn't have stopped me from going out that door. Right. This guy is not like 800 pounds of muscle. No. So, no, I know. And the door's yeah. right there. If you right. want to throw me out of the show, you can throw me out from outside because that's where I'll be. But look, that photograph, it's on my website, scottjameswriter.com. You can look at it. It's in the book too, but you can look at it online and just study the guy's face. And yeah. then you tell me that all of this story that people have created was really happening. I, I think it's hard just to come up with all that, but I understand why people want to believe it. I understand why people want to think that there was evil happening with people's intentions because this was a truly evil thing that happened. Right. But this is our thing in our society. We look for scapegoats right. when uh, a tragedy happens and it's easier to say to blame that dude than right. to think, well, wait a minute, well, how come we didn't have fire codes? Hey, why didn't we have sprinklers? How come, what's up with that? When you had mentioned a perfect storm of errors and almost coincidence, that's exactly what it is. And as a reporter, and I'm an investigator myself, I would look at these and say, all of these cannot be coincidence. This is a conspiracy, but it isn't. Right. If there's so many coincidences that led to so many deaths, there has to be some type of conspiracy here. But it was really just a conspiracy of errors. Right. You know, you're just one thing after another. The guy at the door. Yeah. Lighting off fireworks in a wood frame building. Look, these guys have done the pyrotechnics all over the place in this particular tour. And yes, some of them were, they, people were very upset and they got spoken to until they were putting people in danger. That happened. There was a paper trail that warned them that what they were doing was dangerous. But in the end, nobody had really been hurt in any of those other shows. And to be fair, there's no way they would have known that the foam in this nightclub was gasoline. Right. And so obviously, if they knew that it was that dangerous, they wouldn't have done it. Now, under the rules of them getting the pyrotechnics, when they were kind of warned, when they said they're going to do this on their own, one of the pieces of paper that I found uh, and include in the book was a letter that basically said, look, there are all these steps you need to take if you're going to do pyrotechnics on your own. And one of them was before the show starts, Earlier in the day, set up your, all your gear, do a test run to see if anything possibly might light on fire. Do that before certainly anyone's in the club. Uh, of course, nothing like that was done. Uh, this feeling that this was kind of done on the sneak and the people, the operators of the club and others were deceived that they didn't know this was coming. And there's evidence that that's what happened at other gigs that the band had done, places where they were actually told you're not allowed to do pyrotechnics and they did them anyway. But of course, they're doing it. Why are they doing it? They're not motivated by evil. They're motivated by the fact that they want to give people a good time, right? People like that stuff. And ironically, Break White didn't use pyrotechnics as part of their shows prior to this particular tour. They'd even played at the station in 2000 
and they didn't do any part two. So it wasn't part of their thing, but it became part of it for this tour. Right. So nobody expected it from last time. And I think it came out that the Dadarians were trying to be helpful with the police and the fire department. They said, we'll put on a fire officer if we're expecting to be at capacity. But they looked at the numbers from the previous Great White show and it wasn't super great. It wasn't super packed. So they didn't go with a detail. They didn't go with an extra fire agent or whatever. Well, they had a police detail there, okay. which was interesting. And so the other thing that about the details, because a lot was made about this, uh, especially by one of the local newspapers, they weren't required to have any details at all right. under the law. So they were what's called a class B venue because they weren't very big. But the brothers, the Michael and Jeffrey Dedarian, who were the owners of the nightclub business, they offered to do that. They weren't legally required to. It's really interesting when people talk about, like, say big things. You have to be very careful talking about the cases. What was illegal versus what was maybe not a good idea? Or what did I promise to do? So they did that. And over the years, they say that those arrangements had evolved. And so they stopped doing an on-site firefighter when the gigs weren't uh, all that big. And yeah, the expectation for this night, you think about it, it was great white, kind of a has-been band. Just had been a snowstorm a couple of days before. And bad weather definitely, you know, determines outcome of uh, the crowd. And they had played there before and they weren't overwhelmed. They didn't have a huge uh, number of people come out. Right. So, yeah, I think that, again, part of the, that perfect storm we're talking about of I wish we could have or what if, what if, what if. In terms of the perfect storm, the response to the fire almost went seamlessly as well. The fire department was there in about four minutes, 35 seconds. Not much more you could ask for for them. Correct. Parts of your book, they were stacked up at the main entrance because, as yes. you mentioned, there's a psychological need to come out the door you went in. And that's a little strange. It's in our lizard brain, I think. Yep. But the fire department was right there. The ambulances were right behind them. Yep. And they did save some people, but by that time, from the 16 seconds from we see that wall go up, 72 seconds when Brian gets out to 90 seconds to no more. Yeah. I think that a lot of these building codes also are created under the premise of what's a regular fire. The building would not have gone up so quickly if not for that foam. And right. people probably would have got out quicker. Each of those doors was rated, as they say to be able to allow 150 people in less than a minute to exit. So they do those ratings based on the width of the door and et cetera, et cetera. But this fire moved faster than a normal fire. And so that also is part of the reason people were so doomed. All the normal parameters of a fire didn't apply here. But look, we've had this situation before. Famously, there was the Coconut Grove fire in Boston in, uh, I think it was 1942. So part of uh, what happened in Coconut Grove was it was also filled with highly flammable contents. Now, in that case, it was more like the staging and the decorations and things like that, not foam in particular. And so a part of the reason so many people died there, more than 400, was because the exits were all wrong. They had a revolving door as their main exit. And it got jammed and broken almost immediately, trapping everyone inside. The other exits of the building were padlocked. Right. You had all sorts of reforms that came out of that. When you look at a revolving door today, any place you see it, you will see on each side of the revolving door is a regular door. The reason you have that is because of coconut growth. Right. That that revolving door is not enough because in a panic, it's not going to be able to work quickly enough to allow people to exit. We don't allow 
exits at clubs to be padlocked shut because of Coconut Grove. Right. But other things we didn't learn from Coconut Grove, again, sprinklers are from the 1800s. Coconut Grove didn't have them, and neither did the station nightclub in 2003. Right. And so proper building inspections weren't done to make sure that the contents weren't flammable. We know flammable contents are a problem. At the same time in 2003 that this is going on in Rhode Island, there was a story that was done in Miami. So Miami's a big nightclub scene, obviously. And so when anything changes inside a nightclub in Miami, like they got a new piece of furniture or a new curtain or new window treatments, the fire inspectors are right in there and they want the documentation that shows this curtain is fireproof. And if not, they cut off a little piece of it, go in the parking lot and see if it will ignite to be sure. So people know what to do. They know the right thing to do, but were the right things done in this case? And the answer is no. It's just beyond comprehension. Can you tell us a little bit about the media furor after this? It's the next day and it starts pretty quickly, doesn't it? Well, because of that video, this brings in media from all over the world. And having been a journalist my whole life, you know, one of the things that happens, first of all, newsrooms are overwhelmed because the size of it is just incredible, but also they, they also feel competitive. One of the things that happened in this one was that the Providence Journal, which is the, the newspaper of record in that area, was one of the best newspapers in the United States. And in fact, many of the people who are in the national media have done a stint at the Providence Journal. Even the current publisher of the New York Times, when he was a young man at the Province Journal, it was that well known as a news organization. So this happens and the Province Journal finds itself being beaten on its own turf because people who literally graduated from the newsroom now work at the New York Times and the Boston Globe and at the network newscasts. And so they're getting scooped in their own backyard uh, on the biggest story that's ever happened in recent memory. And they start doing things that are very, very questionable and alter the investigation and alter what the public knows about this case. There's a great scene early on in the book between two of arguably the most powerful men in the state at the time, Governor Don Kacheri and Joel Rossum, who's the editor-in-chief of the Providence Journal. So they are having a fight behind the scenes in a quiet location about what the public is and is not going to know about this fire. Right. Imagine that. This is this powerful game going on between this powerful newspaper and the governor about what is the public going to be allowed to know about this fire. Incredible that that was happening. But that's how powerful that newspaper was at the time. So now imagine that going to that and then you're getting beaten on your own story by these outsiders and they start doing questionable things. One of the things that altered the course of the investigation was they published the home addresses of the nightclub business owners, Michael and Jeffrey Today. There's actual street addresses in the newspaper. Right. Now today we call that doxing, and most people understand that doing that is a form of harassment. Right. You know, there are kooks out there. There are kooks out there who if they find out Tucker Carlson's home address, they're gonna go to his house and they're gonna like No, I know. So you just don't do it because you know it's gonna cause somebody potential harm. Right. But the journal did that and I can't say because I can just say probably not coincidentally because the brothers refused to do an exclusive interview with the Providence Journal. Next thing you know, that their addresses are in the paper. Scott, hold on one second. Let me just ask you a question. Sure. You know a lot of these people personally. I do. You've worked Worked with with some of them. And so that happens. Yep. And now it's died down. It's more than a decade later. Have you ever asked them, 
How do you feel about doing that right now? Would they do that again? Well, it's interesting. When I was trying to interview one of the journal's reporters about some questionable things that she did to pressure people into doing interviews with her, she threatened to sue me. She threatened to mess with the publication of this book. Really? So that was their reaction. This is not something that is going to be discussed and they don't like it. Right. Literally an effort to derail the publication of this book by another journalist. And when the book finally came out, and I didn't scale back at all what I was reporting, she did admit when she was interviewed by another news organization that what was in the book was accurate and portrayed the situation as it was. But yes, her first reaction was, oh, no, you don't. You're not going to ever question what we did in our reporting. And that's unfortunate. And that, frankly, goes against all the ethics of journalism. Right. I've been fortunate to work for some good news organizations, most notably writing for the New York Times. And if you have an error, not only do they fix it, they also say in the permanent record, oh, so-and-so made an error and we fixed it. So they not only they fix their mistakes and then they tell you that they had made a mistake, right. but not everyone does that. And in fact, many of the mistakes that were made by the Province Journal, I had to go to what's called microfilm right. to look at the actual newspapers because they've altered what's in their electronic files Wow! so that you don't know that they made a mistake back in the day. You have right. to look at the physical newspaper, basically a photograph of what the physical newspaper yeah. was to see what was actually reported at the time. So that was one of my first steps was you doing that to see what had been. So one of the stories that is not in their archives today, for whatever reason, is one that really altered the course of the investigation. And that was one they did two months to the day after the fire, where they basically described the nightclub business owners, Michael and Jeff Dudarian as having a quote-unquote legacy of death. So the idea of the piece, there's a front-page story, six-column headline on a Sunday, their biggest circulation day, was that wherever these guys go, death follows them. And part of their premise was that the Darians Armenian heritage. Right. So they talked about how the family had fled the Armenian Holocaust. So this was the first evidence in the legacy of death. Number two was when they were young boys, their mom died. So that's clue number two of their legacy of death. And of course, they eventually build up to the fire and the deaths that happened there. So the implication was wherever these guys go, death follows them. But once the brothers read that, on that day, they determined they would never, ever speak to a journalist again. And so you never heard their side of the story. You never got a lot of key details because of this. And when I entered the picture many, many years later, and I knew Jeffrey because we had worked together at a TV station 25 years ago, So at least I knew him and I could ask him. His first answer to my request for an interview was no, because he hated the news media. I think the only thing I had going in my favor was that at the time the fire happened, I had already moved to California and I was reporting out here. And so I didn't cover the fire and I wasn't part of that media scrum. And so eventually I could persuade him to trust me enough to tell me some things. And eventually he consented to an interview, introducing to his brother. And frankly, after that, a lot of other people who had never spoken came forward. Brian Butler, the photographer. He had never done an interview. The guy who sold the foam, the killer foam to the nightclub, he had never done an interview. So a lot of people spoke to me and filled in some of the gaps that show you that this is a more complicated case than the public was led to believe. Right. But that was key. That article that the newspaper did, The Legacy of Death, was just considered so unfair 
that it just stopped the public from knowing a lot of things. Right, right. And the whole story's misleading. (laughs) It's like they're Armenian, they flooded genocide. And I think at a certain point, their father was held up in in the shop. That was part of the legacy of death. The father ran a convenience store and there was a shooting at his store. Now, nobody died in that one. So I guess it was a near legacy of death. But that was included in that piece as evidence of that, you know, that disaster follows these people. Now, Jeffrey Dadarian was kind of a hard-hitting reporter himself. Yeah. He used some of these same tactics. Is, has he been ho- hoisted on his own petard? Well, look, this is your a classic reversal of fortune story, right? Jeffrey Dadarian, especially when I knew him, he was the type of reporter that you would send to the courthouse to chase the bad guys as they walked in and out. Like, right? so, did you do it? Did I you remember. do it? He was the in-your-face guy. And then next thing you know, He's the guy being chased down the street. Did you do it? Did you do it? So an incredible reversal of fortune for him that that happened. And he was very popular up here in the Boston area. I'm from South Boston. And Jeffrey Dadarian was known for being a hard-hitting reporter and wearing sweater vests. He worked at Channel 7, WHDH in Boston there. Seven News, remember, you know, they're still an incredible news organization, really one of the trendsetters in the country. And he was dispatched to cover Columbine, 9-11. He was a frontline star for them in the reporting ranks. Yeah, and he was excellent. He was excellent at it. So the bodies get taken out, right? And as this is happening, this place is still smoldering. Everybody thinks this happened in Warwick, but it was West Warwick, correct? That is correct. And the police chief says the Dadarians will be indicted. Yes. Is that accurate? The quote was, most definitely will face criminal charges. And I talked to Chief Broussard many, many years later. And again, it was interesting. He said, you're the first person to ask me about this. Now, that (laughs) comment was given to the Associated Press. It was carried all over the world. It was reported by Fox News. You know, when the guy who was ostensibly at that point, the lead investigator, it's happened in his town, says somebody most definitely is going to face criminal charges. It's kind of a shock because he had not done one minute of investigation when he made that comment. Right. And so I asked him many years later, I said, well, how did you know when no one else knew when you hadn't done any investigation? And he basically said, well, you know, it's just common sense. But the license holders are always guilty in these situations. And I'm thinking, well, no, they're not. Uh, Classic example would be like 9-11, where the license holder of the World Trade Center was the Port Authority of of New York and New Jersey. (laughs) Nobody went after them criminally for Osama bin Laden flying planes into their buildings. So that whole line of rush to judgment was problematic. You know, when that happened, and that statement was made, and was carried on the news media, the Darien brothers had been cooperating with the Attorney General, the state police, all the investigators, they'd met with them for extensive interviews and all very well documented about what they knew. But once that comment went public, their attorney said, you can no longer talk to the government because the government has already decided you're guilty without doing an investigation. So they couldn't talk to the prosecutors. And then eventually they they wouldn't talk to the media. So that's why you didn't hear from several key people in this story until now that everything is settled and they can talk. So ultimately, both Michael and Jeffrey Dadarian were indicted, and the band manager, Dan Bichel, he was 26 years old. Yeah. Dan Bichel's running this basically second city tour for these guys on their last legs. And I don't know how great they were on their first legs, but he's running it. He's just a kid, basically. 
and by all accounts, a good kid, right? No criminal involvement and kind of a straight arrow, but he gets indicted and the indictment is the same as with the Dedarians, but there's like 200 counts. Yes. They use some type of crazy formula in yep. figuring out these counts. And when I heard that, that they were going to indict the Dedarians, I said to myself, 200 counts. That's insane. Well, they basically did two theories of the law. So basically, if you don't believe me on this one, maybe you believe me on that one. So it's 100 deaths, but 200 counts of basically manslaughter. Right. And so, look, remember I talked about the mock jury? Well, there were also was a mock jury done on Dan Beakley. That's how you say his name, Beakley. Beakley, okay. And the mock jurors did convict him. It wasn't made public, frankly, till this book, but there was quite an exhaustive paper trail of warnings that were given to Dan that he was flirting with danger. Right. In that same photograph I talked about earlier, the one by Dan Davidson, you actually see the box that the fireworks came out of. And it says on the side, explosives, danger. So when he turns around and says, I didn't know this was dangerous, that's a little disingenuous. At the same time, though, a lot of people believe that he was a patsy. He was a fall guy for larger players and for larger issues. It is wrong to believe, because the state only indicted three people, Dan Beakley and the Dedarian brothers, that this all comes down to these three dudes, that these three no, dudes done it. That is not true. And right. anyone who has looked at this case know that there are larger issues, larger problems at stake. The problem is, so when we talk about the building codes and the sprinklers, uh, who is that? Well, that's the government. Right. And, and the government does not indict itself in a situation like this. And so a lot of people thought that government officials should have been held accountable for you know dropping the ball. The bar had just passed inspection. Literally, you can see the form. It says all OK circled like it was not all OK. It was a death trap, but right. it was given an all OK. So, right. I mean, that guy would have been on the hook if people were really looking at us. I talked to a lawyer friend of mine in Rhode Island. And he said, when I saw there was 200 counts, I knew there was something wrong because they would have to get rid of so many of that. It just seemed like, was it Attorney General Lynch? Yes, Patrick Lynch. Yeah, yeah. He seemed to be playing to the crowd on this. And okay, the indictments go through. And the band manager, I can see, I can see that. But the Dedarians, I thought, was kind of a stretch. They... Uh, trying to criminalize, and I know negligence can be a criminal charge, but it's used more in the civil realm, right? Well, I think that it's interesting. There was no evidence, and certainly if there had been, they would have presented it, that something underhanded had taken place. In other words, in a situation where, let's say, a business paid off a building inspector to look the other way, then you could say, well, they actively tried to subvert the law. There was nothing like that happened there. The public wanted accountability. They wanted somebody to pay for this. Right. And I understand those feelings. And so, you know, to say that it was a systemic letdown of the public wasn't going to be good enough for people. They wanted somebody to go to prison. Yeah. They needed somebody to pay. Yeah. Right. And so Dan Beakley, because he was so incredibly guilty, he takes a plea bargain and he does plead guilty to charges and he's sentenced. The problem was the deal that was cut allowed him to basically serve about 18 months behind bars for the deaths of 100 people. Well, when this happens, people, they lose it. You can see the testimony in court. You can even look at it on YouTube of people testifying at this guy's sentencing. It is so horrific, the pain and the suffering, the rage. So after that happens, 
Now there's only two people left because only three people have been indicted. So it all comes down to the Dazarians. And there's a lot of pressure to really send these people away for like right? life. They turn the turret on them. No, they do. This guy actually lit the match. This guy lit the match, but he had a, a lawyer. I know that his lawyer, he and I worked, also worked together back in the day in TV news. He cut a really good deal for his client. But because of that deal, it made people so angry. So all that was left was the nightclub operators. And then they're ready to throw the book at them. And that went on for a long time. People understand this is not like, you know, a few months here. These things lasted for years. Right. This perpetual prosecution and persecution of these people. And so at some point, the Darians decide that the way to make things not end, but to, to, to draw something towards a way out of all of this would be to take a plea bargain, but they're not going to plead to anything that they didn't actually do. So they do this, what's called a nolo contendere plea, which basically is like, I kind of give up. The system's against me and I'm not going to have a a fair shot here, but I'm going to take this deal. Right. What they plead to bizarrely, and this also got my attention and actually was a deciding factor in whether to do this as a book, was they plead to the phone. The phone they ordered, and I have the order form, and you actually can read it in the book. They ordered sound phone, which is supposed to be soundproof by law. And they got what the they wrong got order. instead was the wrong stuff. They got this packing phone. Right. But in their plea, they plead to the phone as right. a form of negligence to misdemeanor, manslaughter. Yeah. But the other twist here, and this is also a little bizarre, was the deal they struck was behind the scenes was called uh, buy one, set one free. Right. And so the deal was that one of them was going to have to serve as much prison time, at least as much as Dan Beasley, and the other would be allowed to stay out of prison on work on some sort of probationary status so that he could continue to work and support the family so they didn't become destitute. So the buy one, get one free twist is the brothers had to decide amongst themselves which one was going to go to prison. Right. Now, Michael Darian wasn't even there the night of the fire. Jeffrey was there and was inside that burning inferno and saw horrific things. And, and it remains quite traumatized to this day from what he right. personally experienced. He lost a lot of friends there that night. So buy one, set one free. You have to decide amongst yourselves. So there's a scene set at the Dunkin' Donuts on Sakonasset Avenue in Cranston, Rhode Island. That's where they go to have this discussion with their wives because they don't want to be in the home and have the kids overhear the conversation. So that's where they debate. Like, imagine having this debate. Who's right. the better one of us here to do time on behalf of everyone else? Right. And so they, they make their decision. And honestly, the decision they make is the wrong decision. They send the wrong person to prison. The person is not suited for that type of confinement, loses his mind. Uh, right. The public is more angry than ever. The fact that any deal has been struck for these people because they've been led to believe that these guys are going to go away 30 years to life for killing 100 people. But the criminal case had virtually fallen apart for the state, no, because they also had that foam. They weren't really on the hook for that. And then if you throw in, well, what happened to the licensing authorities here? For 15 years, they were getting passes and they got one just months prior. Yeah. There was people in the legal community saying that the Dedarians could beat this with a not guilty. Well, the mock trial showed that they could do that. But here's what you don't consider. While you've got all that other sides of the story, the complexities of it, that you get to hear different evidence and the jury would hear that. The problem was they did some public opinion polling at the same time that showed that the public wanted someone to pay for this. The polling showed that people said 
even if there was evidence presented in court that completely exonerated the brothers, they would still find them guilty and send them to prison because someone had to pay for this. So that's a pretty daunting thing if you're the defendant to say, sure. okay, I don't have a fair shake at this no matter what. And they couldn't change the venue because the state is so tiny. There's only really place to change it to. Right. And I think they weren't going to allow that to happen. And it might not have been in anyone's best interest if it had gone to change right. the venue. I'm not sure it would have changed the outcome. But all of that was certainly discussed. Yeah. You know, I don't think, I mean, just my personal opinion, I don't think the state wanted to prosecute this. First of all, it would have been awful. Yeah. You know, we had a case here. I'm, in, I'm talking now from San Francisco. We had a case a few years ago in Oakland, the ghost ship fire, eerily similar to what happened in Rhode Island. All these years later, so many lessons that were not learned. A building that was not properly inspected did not have sprinklers. There was a fire. The contents were highly flammable. 36 people died there. Again, the state did not indict itself for its shortcomings. Instead, they went after the operators of the building. Sound familiar? So they right. indict these guys, accuse them of the deaths, uh, and charge them. And they were ready. They were going to take a deal after years and years and years of being persecuted and prosecuted. And then the families of the victims said, no, 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 you're not going to do what you did in Rhode Island here right. in Oakland. We're going to have the trial and we're going to put all the evidence out there. We're going to consider it. Well, of course, the trial went on for six months or so. It was agonizing and brutal and awful for the families and everyone involved. And then the jury would convict no one. Really? After all of that. So when they got to see yeah. the totality of evidence, they got to say, well, wait a minute. Why didn't this building have sprinklers? And by the way, why isn't the owner of the building here uh, facing charges if you're going to charge the operators? And what, what about those fire inspectors who never did their job? So, yeah, the jurors would not convict anyone in that case when all the evidence was considered. Would that have happened with the variance? I don't know. The emotions are so high. You know, in a state of Rhode Island where 100 deaths in and, and hundreds hurt, you know, I did my very first speaking engagement for the launch of this book just a couple of weeks ago. Because of COVID, you couldn't do anything. Right. And I did it in Rhode Island, and I queried the room about how many people in the room had a connection to the fire, either they knew someone or knew someone who knew someone, and just about every hand went up. So right. for people there, this was their equivalent of 9-11, if you sure. were a New Yorker. You were impacted. It's hard to get away from that, and that definitely affects the ability to get justice in a case like this. How do you feel about the sentence? I know Michael Dedarian got almost exactly the same amount of time as the band manager. And the band manager, he, everybody in this thing was regretful, but he was just a young kid and you could crucify him and give him a life in prison, but it doesn't really do anything in the long term. How do you feel about the sentences, both Dedarian's and the band manager. What do you think? Michael Dedarian actually ended up serving much more time than Dan Beakley because he lost his mind in prison and that led to behavior problems. And so, you know, people get off for good behavior. He did not. Right. He served much more of his time than Dan Beakley did, probably three years or so. And Dan was around 18 months or so, uh, depending on how you look on it with, you know, work release and things like that. So prison, relatively speaking, went easier for Dan Beakley than it did for Michael Dedarian. Right. I know that the Attorney General Patrick Lynch was accused of politicizing this case, and a lot of people have mixed feelings about how he handled this case. But he did say something in the book, and I thought it was really true. You know, there is no closure in a situation like this. And no. he has prosecuted murders and terrible 
crimes where, as he would say, he never thought that the Tsarians were evil people or Daniel Bigley, but he has met evil people as a prosecutor. He said, and even if, you know, the person goes to prison for life or whatever, uh, and families think, well, then that we we got some sort of closure. He said, there is no closure. At the end of the day, you come home to an empty bedroom, or you go to the cemetery, you see your loved one's headstone, and it doesn't end. That's a misnomer uh, that there's closure for anyone here. Sometimes these things allow that you can take a path forward or you can move on in some way. I read something really interesting recently where somebody basically said, you know, when we experience civil grief, what happens is over time, other feelings come in about other things and we make a room for them. And that's how we process things. The grief is always still there. It never goes away. But somehow our brain allows us to import other feelings over time that make life a little bit more livable. So I think that that's what happens for these people. Right. Like you say, people remember it like they remember a 9-11 and they speak so solemnly about it. It's just a tragedy. And like you say, one coincidence, one bad thing after another. If it was one of those things had not gone wrong, everyone would have lived. And I honestly believe that. Everyone would have lived if just one of those things had not gone wrong. You know, for people like the Dedarian brothers, who were very generous in their time with this book, every day for them is a what if. What if we never bought that club? What if we never hired that band? What if, what if, what if? They even like, you know, what if we had done different things with the fire codes in a building that they don't own, which is kind of, you're not allowed for property that you don't own to go in, you know, but it still doesn't matter. It's like, what if we had taken these additional (laughs) steps that no one ever takes? No, I know. And the people who were there, certainly, what if they never bought that ticket? Some people who perished or were hurt, you know, got comps from Jack Russell, who happened to have an encounter with him before the show. He said, hey, come to my show. Let's close this out by talking a little bit about Jack Russell. This guy pissed me off in all this. Ultimate huckster, I found. And he's trying to sell things. Ah, jeez. This guy is an asshole. And he was trying to make money after the fire happened. The families called him out more than once on this. Am I right? Yeah, look, he tried to make money off of this book, which was fascinating to me. We talked a little bit here and there. And in fact, I went and saw him at one of his shows. I did a lengthy pre-interview with his handler who was screening me. And we were all set to do a formal interview and really unpack this tragedy and talk about the details. And he called me the night before and basically said how much I was going to pay him to do this interview. And I explained to him that investigative journalists don't pay people who they are investigating to do interviews. And then he asked me, could there be a back-end deal, which I assume is like, could he get some sort of proceeds or something? And I told him none of that was going to happen. And then after I canceled the interview and I never had the formal sit-down interview with him. But, you know, fortunately for us, we hear a lot from Jack Russell over the years. And one of the things that you'll hear probably for the first time in the book is that Jack Russell had an extensive, serious criminal record before this. He is now talking about it publicly and almost bragging about it, but he was convicted of what is basically uh, attempted murder. When he was a young man, he went to prison. He served time, but it was up in California. And yelling when you're a young person, offender, you get out based on your age, not necessarily based on your offense. And so no one knew about this. In fact, to talk to lawyers involved with the prosecution of this crime. And they did not know that one of their chief prominent key figures in this case had a past that showed a a blatant disregard for human life. 
So he was never held accountable and he has tried to cash in on this for himself. Right. So yeah, it's, it's a, he's an interesting character. It's a recovering drug addict. He's right. all of those things. Yeah. He's the only person It's really interesting being a journalist. We don't make a lot of money. A book like this is much more expensive to produce than it will ever make in terms of revenues. So to have somebody say that they wanted to cash in on a book when absolutely no one, no one cashes in on a book like this was kind of an astonishing thing. Also delusional, like how books work. Right. So yeah, it was, it was interesting, but uh, you know, I included it in the book. I included sure. exactly all that I just told you is in the book in much more detail about this and people can judge themselves of Jack Russell. Scott, I want to thank you for coming on Boston Confidential. And this is one of the best books I've read in a long time. And I'm a, I'm a voracious reader. It grabs you by the lapels and it puts you in the station nightclub fire. And more than that, it puts you in the lives of these people who had some of the most horrendous suffering that I've seen in quite some time. As tough as it is to get through the parts of the story that involve the fire itself, I still get emotionally moved when I read the stories of people overcoming things and succeeding despite unbelievable odds against them. Uh, I get emotional just thinking about it right now. Like Those are the parts of the book, for me, or parts of the story that really push my button. And I'm so grateful for those people who trusted me to tell their stories and shared things on such an intimate basis. The heart of the book are these people's stories, and the journalism is kind of peppered around it because it really is about them. And so you as the reader are on the journey with them. And some of it is honestly hard to believe, but inspirational. And some of these people are, are just inspiration. All right, guys, that was Scott James and he wrote trial by fire and you won't forget it. Read this book, grab it, go to scottjameswriter.com. You can also pick it up on Amazon, Barnes and Noble and all that. But Scott does ask that you go to his website, scottjameswriter.com and maybe give the business to a smaller book distributor. All right. Do them that solid. Great book. I highly recommend it. Like I said, it grabs you by the lapels. All right, guys, we're on to the next one.